Well, good morning, friends. Please do make sure you've got a Bible in front of you. There's one or two left at the back of the church. If you don't, it'd be a great help if you would keep Paul's letter to the Galatians open in front of you. We've got, I think, six weeks left till the summer, which makes this a good time to put John's gospel back on the shelf and open up something new. And I think Galatians should carry us through. We're going to focus our time these next six weeks on the second half of this letter, often neglected, but full of wonderful things to say about life and love here in the awkward age that we live in. But we do have two weeks to catch ourselves up with the thoughts of this letter and what is going on in the church Paul is writing to. So we're going to begin today with chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 10, page 972 in the church Bibles. Paul, an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with any flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Galicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us 
is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set it before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he through worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Kephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked us, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Father God, we pray that you would use this time in your precious words to keep us trusting in your Son and our Savior and rejoicing in his service. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes the most reassuring words someone can say to you are these, no, it's not just you. Think of some of the questions we might ask, hoping for that response. Is it warm in here, or am I going down with something? Are you still hungry, or am I just being a greedy pig? Did that sermon sound a bit fishy, or did I misunderstand something? Sometimes it helps to hear that, no, it is not just you. And it was one of those sorts of questions that Paul wrote this first surviving letter of his to answer, a question I suspect a bit like this, can the Christian life sometimes be a little bit discouraging? Or is it just me? You see, Galatians is a far more pastorally helpful letter than it might at first seem. But a bit like a pastor, this letter gets pressed into all sorts of uses, which aren't necessarily what it's here for. We pastors like to think that we're useful to have around for something, for maybe answering those big theological questions, to be there at the important times, to train people in reading the Bible, all useful things. But none of those are really what a pastor is for. A pastor's job is to care for your soul by ministering Jesus to you. And Galatians is a pastoral letter. It's a letter written to care 
for Christian souls. It's not here to answer all of our theological questions about the law and the Old Testament. It's not here as a polemic against Roman Catholicism. It's not here as a training book on how to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. It's useful for all those things, but they're not what it's written for. It's written to say, no, don't worry. It's not just you. The life of faith can be a little discouraging at times. Often you don't seem to make a lot of progress, but that doesn't mean you've got it all wrong. So whatever you do, whatever you do, don't shipwreck your soul because you thought there was some way of doing the Christian life better. Now that means that we'll learn from this letter something that I think ought to help with the very thing most Christians tend to get frustrated and discouraged by. This letter is all about living in this awkward age, the age every one of us finds ourselves in. We live in a time that the Bible finds seriously exciting. All of those shadows of the Old Testament have passed away, and Jesus has ushered in his kingdom, that new creation, resurrection world has been born already in our hearts. And yet the truth is, we don't feel all that special. Yes, our sin has been paid for. We know we belong to Jesus' coming world. But for now, at least, each of us has to keep on living in these fallen bodies with our mixed motives and our muddied hearts. And no, it's not just you. Living like that doesn't always feel right. Loving Jesus doesn't mean that all our doubts and struggles and temptations just melt away. And that's why people living in the awkward age are always going to be vulnerable to the sort of thing which troubled the Galatians all those years ago. The idea that there's some secret to holiness that we need to grab hold of, a secret to growing in the Christian life. You see, this isn't really a letter about how to get right with God. It's a letter about whether or not, once you are right with him, you are fully God's people, fully his accepted and loved and welcomed children. Do we need something more in order to live right with him, to make progress in our struggle with our sinful flesh? And so no wonder when Visitors came to Galatia, perhaps with links to the big mother church in Jerusalem. These discouraged young converts were easily troubled. Grace is a good start, they were told. I'm so glad that you've all trusted Jesus. But if you think you're ready for heaven as you are, my friends, I'm afraid you've got a bit of a way to go yet. If you want to make progress, you've got to become one of Abraham's children, a true Israelite. Now, the answers people push for the church today and the answers they pushed back in Galatia are probably very different. Their trick was to focus on Jewish law, go back to the customs of the Old Testament, separation and purity and marks of moral cleanness. That was their answer, their shortcut to holiness. And my guess is that troubled Christians today tend to be given slightly different ones, different solutions 
but the problem we face is just the same. All of us live still in this awkward age when, however close we might be to home, we're not there yet. Discouragement and that feeling that we aren't making a lot of progress and the fear that perhaps we're doing something wrong, all of those are still very real struggles, aren't they? Which makes the urgent, agonized tone of Paul's warning here something we have got to pay attention to. I used to think about Paul in this letter as a bit of a scold. After all, he says some pretty heated and angry-sounding things, doesn't he? Verse 8, let those people who trouble you be cursed. In fact, chapter 5, why let them stop at circumcision? Let them go the whole hog and emasculate themselves. Chapter 3, how could you lot be so foolish to listen to them? It's strong, it's angry at times, but he's not a scold. This is a love letter. It's the kind of letter that's full of hot, desperate tears for this church he loves. He's writing as a pastor, almost as a parent, full of anguish and exasperation for a child. Because he knows that if we let discouragement with the Christian life take a hold of us, it's surprisingly easy to start looking for the wrong answers to our problems. Answers which, however subtly they seem to complement Jesus, actually deny everything he's done for us. This morning, then, I think Paul has two desperately important lessons to teach us about how rescue from this age of flesh and struggle works and about how it can never work. The first comes in verses 1 to 9, and if we want to understand anything else in this letter, this is the most fundamental point of all. It's that nothing in this age can pull you out of this age. You've all heard how the saying goes, it's a preacher's favorite, isn't it? You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But I like a good challenge. And about 10 years ago, when I was a lot younger and a lot cockier, and any excuse to put off writing a sermon seemed like a good idea, I did sit down in the middle of my study floor and give it a good go. I won't demonstrate now because I am not as healthy and my abs are not as strong. First problem, of course, is I wasn't quite sure what a bootstrap actually is, but I reckon the backs of my shoes ought to have done. And so down I got and I tried to pull myself up without holding onto anything except my own heels. And it turns out I hadn't paid anywhere near enough attention in my physics lessons. Now, I like to think I'm not a proud man, so I only gave it about 20 frantic minutes of sweating and straining before I gave up. And what got me in the end was the realization that if Jen walked past, she would finally realize what a lunatic she'd married. But believe me, I tried every technique going, rocking, rolling. I wouldn't recommend bouncing. That was sore in the coccyx. Conclusion. Unless you're a far more competent gymnast than I am, it really is not possible to pull yourself up by grabbing hold of something else, unless that something is above you and separate to you. While Paul's gospel is well and truly about someone reaching down and pulling us up, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? 
to deliver us from this present evil age. Paul's gospel is all about deliverance from something that we could never escape or defeat by ourselves. Deliverance from the problem of our flesh and brokenness and sin and into the age to come. And because that deliverance works by Jesus Christ stepping in and pulling us out, well, notice verse 5, he gets all the thanks and all the glory, not just now, but more literally, for age upon age. Notice how that word age comes up three times in this one sentence. Usually the way Paul opens a letter is very significant. And if he closes the letter with the same thought, you can be sure you're onto something important. So just flick forwards with me to chapter six, would you? And the last few verses. And what do we find there? Chapter six, verse 15. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Frankly, nothing in this age counts for much at all. No, what counts is a new creation, a new age. Do you see how this letter begins and ends? Paul's gospel is about Jesus pulling us out of this age and delivering us safe and sound into the next. And it's the very first verse of this whole letter which begins to show us how that's possible. What is the very first thing Paul tells us about Jesus Christ? Go back to the beginning the first thing we're told is that Jesus no longer belongs to this age. He has been raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus is the Christ, the King, over a new creation, which means that Jesus Christ is the one thing we can hold on to who isn't simply a bootstrap tied to this age of sin and death. And the most remarkable thing about Paul's gospel is this. If you belong to Jesus, then already you have a foot in his new creation. There's a link between Jesus and you, a rope, if you like. And as we get deeper into this letter, we'll see that that link is Paul's big answer to our discouragement, our sin, our lack of growth and progress and holiness. That link is Jesus' spirit. Christ's spirit is the only way out of this age because Christ's spirit is the thing which ties us and pulls us to Christ, the Lord of the age to come. So let me give you some encouragement just as we're setting out in this letter. If you don't feel very much like a new age kind of person, you're in good company. The only difference between you and the Christian who feels like they're making wonderful progress is that you have a shred of self-awareness. But don't let that dishearten you. Look at the astonishing word in chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus Christ gave himself. It is done, accomplished right from the start. So the next time you feel the pull of this world is something that you can never escape, take another look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus' whole purpose in giving himself was to deliver you from the things you cannot beat on your own. And he's done it already with nothing left for you to supplement or complete or bring to the table. 
Now, that is a challenge, isn't it? Because it means that as Jesus choked and gasped for breath on the cross, he was longing for you and me to be separate from this age, this world around us, different to it, free from it, undefiled by it. And if that doesn't challenge you to keep on struggling and fighting, then nothing will. But he struggled and he fought so that you and I could carry on living here in the flesh, knowing that the battle was won, that we do not belong to this world anymore. Now, that is an astonishing gospel, isn't it? So imagine how astonished Paul must have been, verse 6, when he heard the news of these young Christians he had loved and discipled and shared that wonderful news with, And he heard that already this church, one of Paul's churches, the church you'd least expect to turn away, already they were giving up on Jesus as the answer to their struggle. How on earth could things have come to that in this church of all churches? Well, it wasn't because they'd been poorly taught. Paul had been their Bible teacher probably less than a year ago. And it's not that they weren't genuine. No, it's the genuine Christians who are most vulnerable to this. The problem is a group of people Paul calls troublers. Notice that in verse 7. Not just false teachers. He gives them a far more subtle name. These were people who troubled normal converts, who played on their insecurity and their discouragements, until everyone wanted whatever it was they had, an easy answer to growth and holiness. Now, what Paul is going to show to devastating effect is that these troublemakers who seem so godly and spiritual to the Galatians are in fact deeply rooted in this evil age, as deeply rooted as it's possible to be. Their motives are this age motives, and their answers to holiness Jewish law, in their case, are this world answers. And of course, any gospel that comes from this age, this world, is no gospel at all. He couldn't warn them more starkly, could he? Even if I, even if an angel from heaven came and preached to you anything other than Jesus Christ given to deliver you from your sinful flesh, well, verse 9, let him go to hell. That's where this world gospel is going to lead. But the gospel belongs to no man. Not to your pastor. Not to your favorite internet preacher. Not even to Paul or the other apostles. It's something given to him from above. All of us are completely replaceable. If I went under a bus tomorrow... Jesus will have another man lined up to feed his church with another preaching style and other gifts and other strengths and weaknesses. But only ever this gospel that Jesus gave to Paul about an entirely supernatural rescue focused on another age or else it's a no gospel because nothing in this age can ever pull you out of this age. And that's what makes Paul's second point so crucial. Because nothing in this age can rescue you from it, nothing in Jesus' 
gospel could ever be improved by mere flesh and blood. And so that is the basic point Paul makes all the way from chapter 1, verse 10, through to chapter 2, verse 10. Nothing in Jesus' gospel can be improved by flesh and blood. You see, Paul's preaching wasn't a message he thought up on his own. No, his gospel was Jesus' gospel. Some people take this whole section as if Paul was that boring guy you get stuck next to at a wedding who only wants to talk about himself. And so what we have here is this kind of long, tedious autobiography defending his own position, his own apostleship. What that misses is that this section isn't really about Paul at all. There's nothing special about me, Paul is saying, except verse 10, I am an authentic servant of Christ. And everything that follows verse 10 is proof that Paul's gospel really belongs to Jesus. Paul isn't out to please any human being. He's simply here to deliver what was given to him by the Lord. Now, the clue, I think, is down in the footnotes in our church Bibles, because verse 16 uses a word that is very loaded in this letter, a word that unfortunately doesn't make it through into the translation. Where does Paul's gospel come from? Well, look at the footnotes, not from any flesh and blood. What Paul is doing here is distancing his gospel from any flesh answer, any human answer to our sin problem. The troublemaker's answer to the Christian life isn't God's answer. It's a flesh answer, a not gospel. Notice the two constantly repeated words in this whole section, man and revealed. I'm not pleasing any man three times in verse 10, twice in verse 11. In fact, it goes all the way back to verse 1, doesn't it? I'm an apostle, a messenger, not through any man, but through God's. In fact, it's a stonking great eight times that he tells us that. My gospel is not from or through or about pleasing any human being. And word number two, revealed. This is a gospel revealed to me from someone above and beyond this age. Verse 12, I received it from Jesus. I was busy advancing in Judaism, trying to claw my way to perfection and holiness through human answers. But God revealed his son in me, verse 16, in purest grace. In fact, he decided it all before I was even born. Sheer, sovereign, not for good that I had done, grace from heaven. And that grace turned me around completely from my human ways of doing things. And when finally I did go and speak to other human messengers, chapter 2, verse 1, I did that because of a revelation from heaven. And privately, notice that, not to impress any human audience, I think it's fair to say that Jesus had given Paul a unique grasp on what it means, what the cross means for the Christian life and for the full acceptance of people outside of Judaism, probably a grasp on the consequences of the cross that haven't yet fully sunk in for Peter and the others, and he'll deal with that in chapter 2. 
But that's all about behavior and application of the cross. It's not that Paul here is distancing himself from the other apostles' teaching. No, the point he makes is that when it comes to doctrine, he and they agree in everything. Chapter 2, verse 6, they add nothing to him. What he's doing in this long section is distancing himself from any human interference which could have added to the gospel given to him from heaven. Nothing in Jesus' gospel can be improved by flesh and blood, by any man-made opinions or solutions to holiness. Now, why does Paul labor that point so much? Well, partly, I suppose, because a lot of people suggest Paul is often accused of being a people pleaser. His gospel, where Jesus does everything and humans contribute nothing, that just seemed too easy on the Gentiles. But I think there's a little more going on here. Paul isn't simply on the defensive. This is the start of an attack that he'll wade right through the letter that human answers to full acceptance with God and progress in the Christian life are more about pleasing people than they are about pleasing Christ. It will turn out that the troublemakers are the people pleasers. So Paul isn't just defending himself, he's accusing them. Notice how much focus there is running through this section on the pressure to please human beings. It's how Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 10. It's there in Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 4. False brothers have slipped in. Isn't that sinister language? Putting other apostles under enormous pressure to make the message a little more Jewish. And you can imagine how unbearable that pressure must have been for Christians in Jerusalem, can't you? What do we know about life In Jerusalem, in the decades after Jesus' death, well, we know that as this was being written, nationalistic feeling and resentment of outsiders was boiling up in Israel like a pressure cooker until in the end, the Romans lanced the boil by burning the whole place down, temple and all. Imagine being a Christian Jew in that atmosphere And holding on to a gospel that said that these uncircumcised Gentiles, like Titus in verse 3, are no less pleasing to God than you are with all of your customs and traditions. That's the church the Jerusalem apostles are having to hold together. It's, It's hard to read exactly what their situation is, isn't it? But I wonder if the reason Paul says that these apostles seemed influential is that already he can see the church in Jerusalem going bad. More and more Christians there deserting Peter and James and their gospel and caving into the troublemakers. And how subtle those false brothers are. They slip in secretly, hardly noticed, pushing answers which seem wholesome and godly, but it's piling on the pressure to please human beings, to add human things to Jesus' gospel. Pressure that is spread from Jerusalem to Antioch, where we get a glimpse of it in chapter 2, and now it's troubling the Galatians as well. And you can imagine what it sounded like to them. You guys have made a great start with Paul's gospel. That is wonderful. 
you Gentiles. But you know, back in the mother church, we've learned a thing or two over these past few years. If you want to get on, you need to stick with our group. We'll show you how it's done in Jerusalem, teach you what real discipleship is all about. But there's the dead giveaway that somebody's gospel has turned into a no gospel. The moment their answer to the sin problem shifts from keep trusting Jesus to join our group, join our Jewish table, join our church plant, I think you'll find it's a lot more authentic. We're more real with one another in our little church. Your church is great, yes. It's a gospel church. That is wonderful. But we know a lot more about how to do training or how to grow as a Christian or how to disciple your children. Every other church is just somehow a bit compromised, stuffy, woke, declining. They don't really apply the Bible. What you need is a smaller church that's more honest and open, or a bigger church with more programs, more spirit-led worship. We could apply this to anything that people add to Jesus, couldn't we? But the more those additions begin to divide some Christians in the church from others, the more Galatian they start to look. And so Paul says, hold on a minute. Real rescue doesn't come from this world. It comes from heaven. And so nothing in Jesus' gospel can be improved by those this world answers. Not even if those answers come from Jerusalem, from the oldest church in the world. Isn't it interesting in verse 10 that the one thing the apostles stipulate, love for the poor, is the very thing Paul is so concerned about, the big theme of the second half of the letter. Love is what he sees threatened in Galatia by a gospel that divides Christians into cliques and groups. Love and caring for one another is right at the heart of the real Christian life, at least the way that Paul is going to teach it. So you see, his gospel lacks absolutely nothing. This is authentic, full-fat Christianity. And to add anything would just be to contaminate it. When it comes to who we listen to, what we trust, we Christians need to be every bit as streetwise as we are about the water we drink, don't we? If you're traveling in India, you are pretty careful. I've learned it the hard way. You are pretty careful about the water you drink. You want to check its source. And the source of Paul's gospel is Jesus himself. You check the seal, don't you? And the seal on Paul's bottle is pristine. It's not been tampered with by any human being. But the final test, of course, comes when you take a sip. Drink a human gospel promising an easy answer to your flesh, and you end up with a church that is sick as a dog. Instead of loving concern for those God loves, the result we'll see in chapter 5 is backbiting and division, a kind of spiritual deli belly. And in the end, if you rely on things of this age, you will go the way of this age. You'll reap its corruption and its death. Well, two quick summaries then as we close to apply the warning. Number one, anything slipped into Paul's gospel will enslave you to this dying age. 
however subtle and practical that addition seems, the moments our answer to sin and discouragement shifts from keep trusting Jesus to try doing it our way, you've turned a gospel into a no gospel. Number two, any pressure to please flesh and blood can become pressure to desert Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6 would have utterly horrified these Galatians, wouldn't it? The last thing they thought was that they were giving up on Christ. But while Paul is all about pleasing Jesus, the troublemakers want disciples of their own. Or in that brutal language of chapter 2, verse 4, they want slaves, people they can control by force. That is a strong word, isn't it? But Paul uses it three times in this letter. And those two approaches to Christian ministry, pleasing Jesus or pleasing Christian leaders, those are irreconcilable. One leads to freedom. The other leads to even Peter. Imagine that, chapter 2, verse 12, even Peter acting out of fear. And if the people God appoints to look after his church and to love them are engendering fear, something is very wrong. If you can't say uncomfortable things to us, if you can't be honest with us, if you can't share struggles and concerns about church without fear, something is desperately wrong. So where is the emotional pull coming from when we leaders urge you to commit time and talents and money? We will do those things. But I hope it's never to please us, to please us elders or our wives or the people running the rotor or the rest of your small group. But listen carefully. Who are you being called to please? Finally, brothers and sisters, let's take wonderful confidence in what Paul has had to say here, because it is not just you. The Christian life can be long and hard, and sometimes it feels like very slow progress, but we know that Paul did not get the message wrong. It wasn't tampered with, nothing was left out, and what a relief that making it doesn't depend on pleasing any human being or any cosmic slave driver. It depends on a loving father who asks us to trust him and to keep going with his son. The father who gave that son to deliver us so that like Paul, we can say it's his approval I need, not that of any man. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I know him. And I know that his gospel is more than enough, even for me. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that more than anything, we need deliverance from this age and from its grip on our hearts. And we thank you so much that although we struggle weekly here in the flesh, you have given your perfect son and raised him from death so that we belong where he is. Help us, Lord, to rest in no other hope than that, and to live patiently, not to please any man, but to serve 
Jesus Christ, our wonderful deliverer. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.